I, I'm hoping everyone doesn't mind. I'm hoping no one minds if I begin with a story. So, and this is personal, but again, I, I hope you won't mind. So back in 2018, I dragged my husband with me to our local multiplex to see Black Panther. And I will say I dragged him because uh, superhero, superhero movies do nothing for him, or less than nothing. Um, he sort of finds the notion of someone being able to fly or shoot webs from their wrist or turn into a giant green Hulk when they get angry, just too absurd. And unlike me, he's never been one for suspending belief, which is why he also refuses to go to musicals. Why are they singing instead of talking? Really, why? That's his mindset. We're on the same page about the predictability of plots, which invariably follow the same formula, start with a superhero, add a nemesis who seems stronger, throw in a threat of world extermination or domination, Shakespeare, and voila, uh, you know, maybe have the superhero defeat the nemesis and save the world, obviously, but basically uh, that's it. There's some variation here and there, but pretty much before the movie begins, and actually, let's be honest, before it even gets pitched to Hollywood and bankrolled, you know who's going to win. So usually, when I tell my husband there's a superhero trailer that looks interesting, like a new X-Men or Wonder Woman, he says, count him out. And I end up seeing it with a friend or alone or not at all. Uh, with Black Panther, though, I wasn't going to let him off so easily. So months and months before the movie came out, I was hooked. I was hooked as soon as I saw an early trailer on YouTube and heard Kendrick Lamar's beat. And then the voiceover, I have seen gods fly. I've seen men build weapons that I couldn't even imagine. I've seen aliens drop from the sky, but I have never seen anything like this. I was hooked as soon as I saw Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther propel himself through the air and land effortlessly, cat-like on the hood of a speeding car. And I was hooked as soon as I saw the images of Wakanda, the African country of which he is king. I mean, let's be realistic, a superhero movie full of black people with black people as heroes, with black people with badass technology, with a motherland, the country Wakanda, rich in natural resources, including the metal vibranium capable of storing and releasing kinetic energy, a country that had never been colonized or vanquished, and a black person directing and writing, Afrofuturism itself on the screen, for the first time in my life, I considered pre-ordering tickets. Um, in the end, I did not, because I just don't pre-order tickets, but I considered it. And I will also tell you that when I told my white friends that I could hardly wait to see Black Panther, they sort of nodded along, um, but I could tell they did not quite get it. They were interested, but not like a lot of the Black people I knew were interested. And, you know, maybe this is about teams and tribes. Maybe it's like, you know, whenever I would see Serena and Venus play tennis, I'd always root for them, um, at least in the beginning. Or it's like the way I started wiping away tears during the 2008 Democratic National Convention, when Hillary released her delegates, suspended the roll call, and Obama officially became the Democratic nominee for president. And I kept wishing that my parents were still alive to see what they could never have imagined. 
So waiting to see Black Panther was like that, but it was also different. Um, for me, my eagerness to see Black Panther was also connected to how, when I was growing up, the whole family would literally cluster around the TV whenever good times came on, or later the Jeffersons, because otherwise, how were you going to see anyone who looked even remotely like you on TV? The shame slash pleasure in watching Tarzan didn't count, nor did the shame slash pleasure in watching Buckreed or the Piccaninny Farina on The Little Rascals. I mean, how could they count given the shame? Nor did the six o'clock news count with its almost formulaic coverage of black criminal suspects. And luckily, even at a young age, I knew that the news coverage was as racially distorted as the rest of television, a point that was confirmed later when I was older and read media studies of the news. But back to what did matter, uh, we were so hungry to see ourselves that we watched The Carol Burnett Show every Saturday because Sammy Davis Jr was a frequent guest. We were so famished for images of ourselves, even if they were usually much lighter and more beautiful images of ourselves, that when one of us happened to be watching regular TV and a black person came on, we each knew the drill. We give uh, the equivalent of a hue and cry, come to the TV quick. And everyone would drop whatever they were doing, ironing clothes, cooking dinner, homework, and rush to the TV. We were so desperate that we'd gather even when Carol Channing of Hello Dolly fame was on, since we sensed that she had some black blood in her and thus was a member of our tribe, even if the white actors around her did not know it. Even the TV show Batman, speaking of superheroes, became TV worth watching once we learned that the woman playing Catwoman was none other than the black actress Eartha Kitt though her complexion was so light and you so saw little of her face through her bodysuit and mask, you'd have to know to know. So if, as V.Y. Mudimbe has argued, the West invented what we think of as Africa, at least the Africa of Tarzan and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and Saul Bellow's Henderson the Rain King and President Trump's shithole imagination, Black Panther offered a counter-narrative in which Africa reinvented itself. All of this brought to my mind critical race theory, which embraces oppositional storytelling. And all of this had me psyched. And this was still before Black Panther even opened and began breaking box office records. This was before Black and Brown people, including um, athletes and celebrities, adopted the Wakanda greeting and began to shout Wakanda forever. This was before mainstream media like the Washington Post and the New York Times started writing stories about Afrofuturism. And this was before Sophia Robb, a California teenager, was so moved when Michael B. Jordan's character, Eric Killmonger, takes off his shirt and reveals this chiseled pax that she bit down on her retainer, breaking it. Her orthodontist wrote on Tumblr, quote, this tiny 17-year-old girl thirsting so goddamn hard she busted steel. I don't know how many orthodontists talk like that, but apparently that's what he wrote. So anyway, I, I dragged my husband to Black Panther 
Um, though I have to say in the end, dragging him wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. Um, he just needed a slight tug. So it turned out that to persuade him to see Black Panther with me, it helped to let him know that Michael B. Jordan's character, Eric Killmonger, takes off his shirt and reveals his chiseled pecs. Um, and this is sort of where words fail me, you know, not in terms of describing uh, the chiseled pecs, but in describing what it was like sitting in a packed movie theater, open-eyed, mouth agape, my heart racing like a roller coaster, holding it in rather than running to the restroom because I didn't want to miss a single thing. I'm tempted to say watching Black Panther was like Christmas and New Year's Eve and Juneteenth rolled into one. Or maybe it would be more accurate to say it was like every single time my family gathered around the TV, finally seeing ourselves. And like the rest of the audience, I wanted to give it a standing ovation afterwards. I wanted to yell Wakanda forever. So in the end, of course, I was just one of the 72 million people who saw Black Panther during its opening weeks. But I suspect out of those 72 million, I was the only one who saw it and thought back to my time as a federal prosecutor in the US Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, when out of nearly 200 federal prosecutors in my office, there were only seven African-Americans. And this is in New York City, a city that at the time was about 30% Black. I was probably the only one who thought how different the office would be if Black and Brown people had power, Black power, like Blacks had power in Black Panther. I was probably the only one thinking about how the United States is projected to tip from being majority white to majority minority soon, like 2044 soon. I was probably the only one too who left Black Panther and thought how crude, by comparison, most policing technology was. Even in the Southern District of New York, even working with the FBI and the DEA and the NYPD. So sure, law enforcement agencies had high-end military-grade gear, but in terms of actual crime fighting, the day-to-day -day work of ferreting out crime, they were for the most part relying on old school tools, going door to door to ask for witnesses, typing up reports on clunky computers, and sometimes in the case of NYPD, clunky typewriters, making corrections using whiteout. Law enforcement needed something akin to Wakanda's vibranium. So I left Black Panther on cloud nine, but only part of this was because I'd just seen one of the best comic book films ever. Uh, the other part was this, already I was thinking about Afrofuturism, critical race theory, and policing in the year 2044. So I hope you don't mind that I've related this experience of seeing Black Panther. I did so because I can think of no better way to describe the genesis of the Law Review article I wrote a few years ago titled Afrofuturism, Critical Race Theory, and Policing in the Year 2044, which is the subject of my presentation today. And although I plan on jumping ahead to 2044 momentarily, I first want to say a few words about why Afrofuturism, why critical race theory, and why policing. So first, why Afrofuturism? And I'm going to give two reasons. One, um, I'm, I'm sure most people realize this, but most artistic visions of the future 
have been majority white. Uh, from Minority Report or Star Trek or Star Wars, from A Clockwork Orange to A Brave New World. And yet demographic shifts project America will likely be majority minority by the year 2044. So just given that alone, it makes sense to consider how black and brown people have imagined the future. Especially since, as one commentator has noted, Afrofuturism has been proposing ways forward for decades. The second reason I want to offer to turn to Afrofuturism, it's more personal. So I've already mentioned my excitement over Black Panther. Um, I should also mention years before, um, as a child, I grew up listening to Parliament Funkadelic, which we also associate with Afrofuturism. But beyond that, Afrofuturism, like critical race theory, speaks to me as a Black man. Indeed, one could even argue that my Blackness invites a kind of Afrofuturistic speculation. So as one writer put it, and I'm quoting, the very idea of a global African diaspora creates the most fertile of grounds for a field of what ifs. What if European enslavers and colonizers had never ventured into the African continent? More intriguing yet, what if African nations and peoples had successfully rebuffed generations of plunder and theft? What if the Zulu had won the wars against the British? and a confederation of Bantu people had risen up and smashed Belgian rule? What if the transatlantic children of the mother continent had been allowed to remain building their empires with the bounties of the cradle of civilization? So that takes care of why Afrofuturism, now why critical race theory? So I don't know how many of you have been following the ins and outs of American news, but just last week, President Trump banned federal agencies from teaching critical race theory and described critical race theory as, quote, divisive anti-American propaganda, end quote. All of this brings to mind, to me, uh, Derek Bell's seminal 1995 lecture at the University of Illinois, Who's Afraid of Critical Race Theory? Indeed, Trump's fear of critical race theory may seem reason enough to sort of turn to it, but it's not my reason, not my reason. Rather for me, looking to critical race theory or CRT for short makes sense because critical race theory is in many ways a project of reconstruction, a project of finishing the unfinished revolutions, the first and second reconstructions in the United States. So put differently, CRT has always been about envisioning a, a third reconstruction. And to be honest, I also like CRT's style or flair. You see, CRT doesn't just imagine a different way of doing things. It also contests the very language of mainstream legal and social analysis, arguing that a preference for neutral, disengaged, unraced, and unsexed voices in legal scholarship reifies a baseline that is both white and male. To challenge this preference, critical race theory embraces the notion of grounding a scholarly voice in the material, aesthetic, emotional, and spiritual experiences of people of color. Critical race theory also embraces storytelling as a way to interrogate the law and enrich the scholarly conversation. I'm doing precisely that by imagining the future. So in short, my presentation right now, this very minute is storytelling 
and its critical race theory in practice. So those are my justifications for turning to Afrofuturism and critical race theory. And with that, I, I probably won't say much more about the principles of Afrofuturism or critical race theory um, during this presentation. I'm happy to talk more about them during the Q&A. Suffice it to say that they each have certain principles um, in the case of Afrofuturism, an embrace of technology. Um, in the case of Afrofuturism and CRT, the goal of disrupting hierarchies along the lines of race, gender, sexuality, and class. Um, they both have these principles that lend themselves well to my project of imagining policing in the year 2044. Um, this still leaves open a final question, why focus on policing? And it's my sincere hope that there will one day be Afrofuturist scholarship considering a range of legal issues that matter in the year 2044 and beyond, from whether we'll need affirmative action for whites uh, to changes to the Voting Rights Act to ensure that whites are still represented, um, just to give some examples. And while these issues or types of issues are important, my own background lends itself to the topic of policing. After all, once again, I am a federal former federal prosecutor. And right now I'm a criminal justice scholar that writes about policing and technology. Beyond that, I'm a black man living in a country where, again, let's be honest, I'm always being policed. I'm always under surveillance. And in this country still, young plus black plus male still too often means probable cause. Um, luckily, I'm beginning to age out of the young bit, or maybe unluckily, but other than that, uh, probable cause. So indeed, to a certain extent, so many of the problems that plague the criminal justice system, I have argued elsewhere, um, are really only intelligible through the lens of race. So to me, it seems natural to ask how problems of policing might be addressed when people of color hold the keys to the courthouse and the prison. So all of this brings me to the future part of my presentation. And as you know, the second part of my title, Policing in the Year 2044, again, references 2044, because that's when the United States is projected to tip from being majority white to majority minority. And I have to say, as a minority, soon to be in the majority, I find this endlessly fascinating and full of possibilities. What might the future look like in the year 2044 when people of color make up the majority and really more realistically in the ensuing years when people of color obtain political and economic power to match their numerical power? What might policing like, look like? And how might some of the problems we've been wrestling with um, from mass incarceration to over-criminalization to police violence to capital punishment be addressed when people of color are in control or in the majority. So that's what I determined to find out, or maybe more accurately, I should say, that's what I set out to imagine. So allow me to suggest that in a future informed by Afrofuturism, and critical race theory, technology itself is likely to contribute to reduction in crime. So consider the technologies we already have, 
and also consider future technologies that we can already imagine. So for existing and emerging technologies, um, just go ahead and think of the likely exponential increase in the use of surveillance cameras and eye in the sky technology, um, the perfection of facial recognition technology and other biometric technologies. Think of the likely instantaneous access to big data by which we would all be knowable with the click of a button. Think of the use of remote terahertz scanners already in development and already being perfected that would allow police to detect for unlawful firearms. Think of the widespread availability of short range communication technologies and to obviate the need for traffic stops. So these are technologies that would allow a police car to stop um, another car remotely. Oh, and then for that matter, think of uh, self-driving cars, which will also obviate the need for traffic stops. Add to this the likely universal collection of DNA samples from newborns, or add machine learning. All of this will likely contribute to a scenario where being able to commit a crime in public without detection will be almost impossible. All of this is likely to contribute to deterrence and improve, improving apprehension. And I'll just add that um, the sociologist Patrick Sharkey at NYU has described the decline of violent crime in the United States these last three, decade, three decades as sort of the great crime decline. And I can't help but ask, is it really going too far to suggest that part of this crime decline that we've seen these last few decades is attributable, at least in part, to technological developments? And if that's true, imagine what the future holds as we embrace more technology. I'm also gonna throw in, since you know we're in this moment coming out of a um, George Floyd summer and a summer of um, racial reckoning and Black Lives Matter, the, the technologies I'm talking about can also reduce unjustified police violence. Um, so to a certain extent, and this might be marginal, surveillance itself, surveillance cameras itself, and not just body-worn cameras, but cameras posted everywhere will deter some police behavior. But more importantly, uh, scanners that can detect weapons will be able to tell the police whether the suspect is armed or not, whether the suspect is dangerous or not. And access to big data will be able to tell police whether somebody has a history of nonviolence or not, um, reducing the risk of unjustified police violence. Future technologies will also likely enable the police to disable weapons from a distance. So all of these technologies seem to be full of possibilities that we might want to welcome. And all of these technologies are likely to be adopted in a future informed by Afrofuturism and critical race theory. So certainly such technologies are consistent with Afrofuturism's embrace of technologies that disrupt hierarchies along lines of race and gender. And they can certainly help deracialize policing, long a concern of CRT. Perhaps most importantly, the technologies I'm talking about can help contribute to redistributing privacy. 
Um, so allow me to say a few more words about policing and technology and also privacy, because this is where I often get pushback. So some of the technologies that I've described or that I'm envisioning may sound like they are privacy diminishing. Um, but the point is to imagine a future in which people of color, now in the majority, harness these and other technologies to reduce racialized policing and to make policing more egalitarian and yes, to reduce crime. So I recognize current technologies are not racially neutral. I recognize too that technology is anything but an innocent bystander when it comes to mass incarceration. So as the cultural critic and digital artist Matrice Gaskins puts it, quote, historically people of color have been casualties of technologically enabled systems of oppression, end quote. And the sociologist and futurist Ruha Benjamin at Princeton has even coined the term, the new Jim Code, a play on Michelle Alexander's, the new Jim Crow, to warn that technologies can perpetuate and exacerbate inequalities, especially when they have the veneer of being free from human influence and bias. But none of this suggests that biased technology is inevitable biases can be identified and eradicated, or at least minimized. Um, and just for a second, think about facial recognition, because people, one of the concerns about facial recognition technology has been that um, facial recognition right now usually has difficulty recognizing Black faces. They see it as sort of a racial bias and an ability to recognize or distinguish Black faces. But keep in mind, um, a lot of that has to do with inputs. So computer, consider facial recognition technology developed in Japan and um, China. Those technologies actually have trouble recognizing white faces. Um, all of that is suggest it's, it's not the technology itself is the problem, it's the design, the human design of the technology. And it also suggests that all of this technology can be improved and perfected. It's also about imagining more diverse people at the table in creating technology and in saying what kind of technology they want. It's about imagining instead of a top-down approach to technology, a bottoms-up approach. It's about imagining the benefits that would flow if racial minorities had the agency to produce technology, to create code, recode, drop a remix. To again borrow from Ruha Benjamin, what interests me is thinking about how, quote, technoscience can be appropriated and reimagined for more just ends. By the way, I should also say um, that since criminal issues do not exist in a vacuum, I'm also assuming other changes that will happen in the year 2044 and beyond, really, when Black and Brown people wield political and economic power such as the redistribution of wealth and the expansion of the social safety net. Um, all of this is also likely to contribute to crime reduction. So what else? Um, no matter what, there'll probably still be some crime, but as should already be evident, technology will make much of the police work as we know it today unnecessary. So this past summer, 
there've been all these calls to defund the police. These calls have been at their peak probably, but technological advances can play a role in drastically reducing the number of police officers. Um, we could have smaller police forces, um, fewer humans exercising problematic discretion. Um, but also in a future informed by Afrofuturism and critical race theory, the, the police officers that do remain will hopefully reflect the diversity of the jurisdiction, um, not only along lines of race, but also in terms of gender, sexuality, religion, class, et cetera. So a future informed by critical race theory and Afrofuturism is also likely to insist the police training emphasize the caretaking role of policing and to insist the police are screened for implicit biases and to require officers to undergo empathy training. One thing that excites me and I'm looking forward to in the future is um, VR, virtual reality simulations in which officers can experience being different. For example, male or female, gay or straight or trans, documented or undocumented, Asian or black or Latino or white and having to interact with a police officer. In my Afrofuturist and critical race theory future, criminal procedure will also be different. Um, so again, I'm talking about a future where um, minorities, racial minorities are in the majority. And in this future, um, we're also likely to insist on a more diverse judiciary. So my future, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor is now Chief Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She's still a wise Latina, but she's now joined by a wise Asian American and a wise African American and a wise South Asian American, all reflecting a range of sexual class and other backgrounds. The court will accept precedent permitting non-targeted surveillance in public which is the current law, but rather than, rather than relying on the notion that there can be no expectation of privacy for what is knownly exposed in public, they will likely add a new justification. Such surveillance reduces unequal policing and thus furthers the goal of equality now incorporated in the Fourth Amendment. This court is likely to make other changes as well. They will likely insist that all citizens be informed of their rights even their right to say no. A court informed by critical race theory is also likely to curtail the discretion officers now enjoy, given that such discretion tends to perpetuate unequal policing along lines of race, class, section, sexuality. What else? I'm also imagining in this future, this Afrofuturist and critical race theory future, that the frequency of various remaining crimes will be reduced. So we've already talked about why crimes in public will be reduced, but there's still crimes that happen behind closed doors. But I would imagine some of these crimes will be reduced. So the widespread availability of sex robots, the legalization of sex work, and the move towards sex positive norms, all features of CRT and Afrofuturism will likely reduce sex without consent crimes. Domestic violence is also less likely to occur. Um, because of other changes, the availability of housing and employment, a larger safety net, and gender equality. All of these will facilitate the ease with which people can enter and leave relationships. What else? Um, 
Well, I think in the future informed by Afrofuturism and critical race theory, what behavior that is considered criminal and what is not is likely to change. So I think people of color recognizing how what is considered criminal behaviors often raced are likely to revisit a range of current crimes. Um, marijuana use, to the extent it's still criminalized, decriminalized. Other drug crimes, similar. Quality of life crimes, malum prohibitum crimes, lots of those crimes will be um, no longer criminalized in this future. Other crimes, I mean, I'm sorry, other conduct or behavior not currently considered criminal might, however, be considered criminal in this future. For example, discrimination on the basis of a protected status might be considered a crime, or following a student in a store because of race, or paying an employee less because of sex, or removing a passenger from a flight because of perceived national origin or religion might all be made a crime. Prisons may not yet be abolished, abolished but at least there'll be a last resort in this vision of the future. And capital punishment, let's just say that black and brown legislators, knowing that capital punishment has always been tainted by racial discrimination and discrimination against other outgroups, will likely take steps to ensure the abolishment of the death penalty. So I'm, I know that I'm leaving questions unanswered, which I'll probably get to in the Q&A, um, such as how do we map a way to this future? More importantly, how do we make sure that black and brown America does not simply replicate the inequality and policing that exists now? How do we gird ourselves against resistance and how do we prepare for the long game? And I will confess, these are questions I'm still thinking about. But I will say the first step has to be at least thinking about the long game. Or maybe the first step is recalling the past. So after the Civil War, when newly freed slaves briefly could exercise the right to vote, and at least in that sense were truly citizens, there was this brief period, this period of radical reconstruction during which more than 600 African Americans served in state legislatures in the South and hundreds more held local offices, offices from sheriff to justice of the peace. Moreover, 16 African Americans served in Congress during this period, including two US senators. It was an unprecedented experience in biracial democracy. And during this heady period, this radical reconstruction period, Blacks pushed for suffrage, equality before the law, equal access to public education, equal access to transportation, and a more equitable distribution of property. So what can we learn from that experiment? That's the first thing we should think about. The second step is to again, think about the future. So I like to think about it this way. If we said to every black and brown and white parent out there, your children and grandchildren are going to live in a very different world, one that is far more diverse, where they have the potential to make the world a better place and where they have the ability to truly create a new country. If we said this to these parents, how would you want them to prepare their children and their grandchildren? How should they prepare them now for tomorrow? 